What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's October 1st, and most people don't know how we got here to this point in a not-so-normal year. Chandra Prasad, our guest today, has written a book about time travel called Mercury Boys, published in August by Sahotin. Maybe Chandra can address the issue. Welcome, Chandra. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much, Diane. It's a pleasure to be here. Chandra, your first young adult novel, Damselfly, was published by Scholastic to critical acclaim. By way of introduction to our listeners, you previously wrote general fiction, including the novel On Borrowed Wings, which was a Connecticut Book Award finalist. Your other novels include Death of a Circus and Breathe the Sky, a fictionalized account of Amelia Earhart's last days. The author Wally Lamb wrote, Breathe the Sky brings us into Amelia Earhart's cockpit and her psyche. From liftoff to landing, this is a novel that soars. Well, I'm here to tell you that uh, Mercury Boys also soars. Um, Prasad, you are, Chandra Prasad, you are also the originator and editor and contributor to Mixed, the first ever anthology of short stories on the multiracial experience. Um, being multiracial yourself, uh, you've long acknowledged the dearth of significant multiracial characters in literature, especially for teens. So we've got between 7 and 14% of this country's youth population um, as multiracial, and less than 1% of children books, children's books currently feature a significant multiracial character. So... Mercury Boys has as its character Saskia Brown, and she is a winning protagonist. You've written novels and now young adult fiction. Chandra, how do you describe yourself and and what you're doing? Well, um, that was a really good summary. Thank you. Um, I started out uh, in writing, and I started actually at a really young age. I was serious about writing even as a teenager, um, and I always wanted to tell stories about identity, and I think that does go back to the fact that I'm more than one race. Um, I'm half Asian and half white. And um, when I was growing up some time ago now, um, there were really no stories that had significant multiracial characters. And so from the beginning, from the get-go, I was interested in exploring identity and exploring kind of the areas between uh, categories of identity. So all of my books, whether they're young adult or um, before that, I was writing a lot more general fiction or novels for adult, and I and I still have some coming down the pike. Um, they all explore identity in one way or another, whether that is gender, race, sexuality, and all of the gray areas in between. They all have that theme running through them, and especially now that I'm writing novels um, for teens that adults also read, I feel a special obligation almost to address those in-between areas because uh, all kinds of teens need to see themselves reflected in the books. And I think it's very important to to provide books that cover this multiracial sector since it is growing, like you said, so rapidly. And it's also, um, it's also true that uh, Lives don't look the way they used to, right? So Saskia Brown, our protagonist in Mercury Boys, she is from a divorced family, a recently divorced parents. Um, so this also gives her, I think, a sense of of shame or of not belonging or you know, not having the traditional, um, you know, family uh, structure any longer. And she's also torn apart by it. She is African American. Um, she uh, she also is multiracial, but she I think identifies, uh, and she identifies as multiracial. But in appearance, she is um, brown skinned and she has an afro. So um, you know she is identifiably 
um, multiracial. And I also wondered, you know, obviously Mercury boys, these are the objects of affection, but you also chose to wrote, write about a girl. Um, so the female lead, is that something that you want to explore further? And is it through your existence as an adolescent growing up as a multiracial girl? Yeah, um, I think maybe just to give your readers a little, um, just a quick little recap of the book, because it does have a lot of things going through it. Um, like you said, it's mainly about a character named Saskia Brown, and she's a teen, a modern-day teen, and she has just moved from Arizona to a fictitious town in Connecticut. And most of the reason that she moved was that her parents um, had a very acrimonious divorce. And um, she's now moving with her father to a new town. Um, like many teen, teens, um, you know, she is from a family that is, um, you know, not your traditional uh, two-parent family. And she's thrust into this new place where she is a complete outsider in many ways. She's the new kid in town. She feels different because it's a pretty uh, white town and she's not white. Um, she's used to be outgoing, but now she's quite shy because of the divorce and a lot of the emotional turmoil that's been kind of thrust upon her. So she's starting fresh in this new town. And what basically happens is she makes the startling discovery with a friend of hers that in visiting an old, uh, in visiting a neighboring library, they find these old photographs called daguerreotypes, which were made primarily in the 1800s. And the girls make this startling discovery wherein they can time travel and actually visit the boys and, in one case, girl in the photos. So as the girls have um, tumultuous friendships with one another, at the same time, they are also going back in time and having um, relationships with the people in the pictures. I'd say even though it has a sci-fi component and even though there are, um, there's some, uh, there's a lot, there are a lot of things going on in the book, but I'd say primarily what it is about is about an exploration of modern female adolescence and these complicated relationships that modern teens have, these complicated lives that modern teen ha modern teens have, but using history as a lens to kind of go through that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's fascinating because um, the um, the daguerreotype, you call it, um, it, it it's a process uh, that is um, etched on copper plating and then it's, it's actually mirrored. Um, and you call it the mirror with a memory. Um, daguerreotypes, the earliest form of photography, as you mentioned, from the 1830s. Through the nineteen through the eighteen sixties, um, and I thought this was fascinating because even though, as you just mentioned, it does have sort of a sci-fi component, but it's also about the fantasy life of adolescent girls, which, you know, from my recollection, it doesn't get any more sci-fi than that. I mean, we were always <laughs> fantasizing about you know, and 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 those fantasies that we had about boys or unattainable girls or, you know, objects of our affection, they were very real to us. And there are ways in which the interpretation of the book can also be that you're just exploring, you know, a very rich fantasy life um, that occurred that actually allows girls to become somewhat vulnerable, right? Because they believe, they want to believe, and then they maybe transfer their beliefs to um, friends and sort of popular girls that, you know, actually don't deserve <laughs> their loyalties. Um, so Saskia, I mean, she's she's great. And also she has, I would say, a cringeworthy divorce scenario where her parents um, divorced over the the affair that her mother was having with a um, teaching assistant. So it's mortifying what happened to her. Um, when Saskia does, um, she, she does have this, she comes, she gets this daguerreotype through her friend, Lila, who works in the library. She has this kind of um, connection, this very kind of uh, woo-woo 
ethereal connection with the object in the daguerreotype, Robert Cornelius. Um, and he's a brilliant young inventor from the 19th century, but she can see him only in her dreams. And she shares this idea and this group of girls whose dynamics become very warped um, all manage to steal away uh, through Lila uh, in the library the daguerreotypes that become their objects of affection. So I wondered, you know, this idea of mirror with a memory, what drew you to the subject of daguerreotypes and how did you, how did you even stumble across it? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, there were there were two reasons. First, uh, Robert Cornelius, like you said, was this brilliant real life inventor um, who lived in the 1800s, and I encountered, you know, him or learning about him because his picture, his photographic self portrait, was actually in the news maybe 10 or 15 years ago, um, and it's just a really arresting memorable photo of, um, of himself taken by himself. Um, and what he did was he set up a camera um, and was able to take this daguerreotype by, at that time, standing still for about five to ten minutes because it took a really long time to take daguerreotypes at that time. The technology was very old. And he took this photo, never knowing that someday it would become semi-famous for, believe it or not, being the first so-called, in today's lexicon, selfie, right? Today, the mm -hmm. first selfie. Um, and so it was in the news as being the first selfie. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's, that's interesting. But I was more interested in the photo and, and this, this person and kind of what he was like. So I started researching him. And I started to learn that in order to make daguerreotypes at, in that time, you had to be a very skilled chemist. And to be a very skilled chemist, you needed to work with pretty toxic chemicals to make daguerreotypes. Mm -hmm. And one of them was mercury. And mercury is um, the only metal that's liquid at room temperature, and it has a very mirror-like quality, like, like you mentioned. And so already being interested in, in Robert Cornelius and thinking, this is good story material, I also started researching mercury, and that was just fascinating because mercury has um, a really storied mythology to it, um, throughout time, people have mm -hmm. thought it has all of these magical properties that it could enhance fertility or uh, help people live longer. Even some people thought it could help people achieve immortality. Um, even though we know mercury is poisonous, people ingested it through to, mm -hmm. throughout the ages, even as late as, you know, really toward the beginning of the 1900s, people were still ingesting mercury thinking it could help with different afflictions. Um, some famous people in regularly ingested mercury, Abraham Lincoln, mm -hmm. Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women. So it, so mercury was also fascinating to me. And somehow these two things, this, this idea of Robert Cornelius, this uh, idea of mercury being this kind of magical element, um, those two things coalesced in my mind. And I started to think how they would work really well in a story about you know, female teens on a journey of self-discovery and really, um, you know, growing up and how um, these two things, you know, this dreamlike universe, like you were mentioning, and this idea of a toxic substance could help kind of draw out that story and bring it to life. It's really, it's really fascinating. And I love also in the book that the images, the actual daguerreotypes are there. And um, the, Cornelius is exceptionally compelling looking. Um, the others also look completely interesting, if not arresting. And you flesh out their histories as well. It's just a very multidimensional book. Um, and as you mentioned, so Abraham Lincoln was was ingesting um Mercury. I didn't realize Louisa May Alcott as well. Um, Lincoln took it for uh, to treat depression. And I, as a child, was completely captivated by mercury. Why did we have it in our house? I have no idea. <laughs> My father had the beads of it in the basement at his workbench. And if you pressed on it, like they scattered into thousands of pieces. I mean, they really, uh, uh, beads, rolling beads, like water beads. And um, they were completely 
magical. As you say, they drew you into, you felt like there was some sort of parallel universe. And Cornelius himself said to our um, our beloved Saskia, before meeting you, because there is a reciprocal relationship across the um, ages through time and the time machine, he says, before meeting you, I never supposed that humans could travel through time the same as they travel through points in space. Um, I, I wondered if you spoke um, through your characters about your certain philosophies of life. I mean, he also said, um, maybe this is the is what it was supposed to be. Maybe you're always destined to be here. It could be that the course of my life depends on your in- intervention to Saskia, but there's no way to know. Um, I wondered if you were actually commenting on fate and the fates and, and how um, these might work and how powerful they are on our imaginations. I think in a way, yes, I think I was. Um, and maybe, you know, through those comments by Cornelius, I was really saying that what Saskia was experiencing, you know, whether this was really happening or whether it was a dream or whether um, her exposure to, to Mercury was having this effect that these moments with Cornelius and these um, times that she was having with him, the conversations and experiences um, that were supposedly happening in the 1800s, these felt as real to her as, you know, going to school or meeting up with this group of friends that she ended up um, creating a secret Mercury Boys Club with. And when you spoke earlier about, you know, teens, um, and especially teen girls having such a vivid internal life with their imaginations and their creativity, I mean, I think that's true across the ages. I think, you know, young women have always had that, and it's been part and parcel of their development into adulthood. Um, And especially now with the complicated, very complicated world we live in where, um, you know, teen girls, they have, you know, bullying and and toxic relationships with one another. And, um, you know, we're dealing with COVID and we're dealing with an onslaught of technology like we've never had before and having, you know, one life on screen and a different life without. Um, Girls are navigating a complicated life like never before. So, it feels to me like having this internal life, um, it would be more important than ever. You know, having this kind of secret way of um, imagining what life could be would be more important than ever to their survival, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Having a parallel existence almost, I think um, it is fascinating. And, you know, you'd be surprised because escapism is one of the themes that has emerged in adult publication as well in terms of books that are succeeding now in reaching a wide audience. Um, escapism is one of our reflexes and how we're coping hmm. with things like the pandemic. Um, we just have a couple minutes before the break, but I wondered if you would just comment on now that we're talking about this rich fantasy life, how does escapism help marginalized girls in particular to cope? Do you think, is it something even more intensive there? Well, yeah, I mean, Saskia is marginalized in, in so many ways in this book, you know, like, like we talked about, she's going through this divorce and she's having um, toxic relationships among her friends and, She's navigating a new school. So I think that escapism for her is not just something that she feels compelled to do, but something that she actually just needs to do to cope and survive um, Mm -hmm. under the circumstances that she's in. And um, yeah, it's very interesting to me what you said about escapism becoming more popular today, because I think you're right that it's not just about, you know, teens. I think that even adults need to do this right now. And that's why, you know, there's so much binge watching of television shows or, um, you know, definitely what we're reading is a little different because nobody really wants to be reminded of some of the stark realities happening right now. Um, but mm-hmm. certainly um, when you have a girl like Saskia who, you know, is dark skinned and isn't, is a new person in a new place, all of these things coming together really are propelling her into, into needing to escape and to kind of get away from her reality in order to just kind of get through life on a day-to-day basis. 
Absolutely. And it's a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. In this book, Mercury Boys by Chandra Prasad, we find ourselves lost in a world of imagination, but also one of realizations. So when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Chandra. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here, for Chan- with, here with Chandra Prasad, author of Mercury Boys. It's young adult fiction, but as an adult, way adult reader, I got a lot out of this book, Chandra. It begged the question for me, um, what we were speaking to before the break, maybe who did you have in mind when you wrote the book or you know, were you aware of these currents in our culture now where escapism serves a real function for us in terms of what we're listening to, what we're reading, what we're looking at? Um, who did you have in mind? Yeah, uh, so one of the reasons I decided to write um, in general fiction and then also young adult fiction is that a little known um, fact in the publishing industry is that um, adults, and especially adult women, read young adult books almost as much as teens do. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I know that I've always read a lot of young adult fiction um, and, and have found it, you know, very compelling a lot of the time. So I really wanted to reach, you know, a, a broader readership with my books. And I know that, you know, some of the key things, key themes that adolescents love to read about, um, coming-of-age stories, focus on big issues like life and death and, and romance and friendship and, you know, how I, our identities change through times. Well, these are issues that not only teens are interested in, but also, I mean, I don't know any adults that are not also interested in these themes as well. So um, that was important for me, you know, to try to, to reach as broad an audience as possible and to kind of keep my finger on the pulse of what all kinds of readers would like to to read more about. Well, you've done just that. And um, it's not a one and done. The themes that are in this book, certainly peer pressure, losing your identity, uh, losing your personal power to someone who's intimidating. I mean, obviously, the most stark example is bullying. But, you know, it doesn't, it can be much more nuanced than that. And what happens in Mercury Boys is more subtle. Um, there is a kind of a takeover of Saskia's personality um, because she has this romance going, this um, fantasy romance going, and it keeps her going. But also the, this um, club that they form around the Mercury Boys, that it gives her the sense of belonging that she's really missing. Um, and, you know, maybe the same thing happens at the country club. Maybe the same thing happens to adults when they sort of, um, you know, surrender parts of themselves to fit in to some sort of, you know, cultural cultural group. Um, as you say, these things are not one and done. These are, these are issues that travel with us 
as does identity throughout throughout our life. I wondered if Saskia was particularly able to be manipulated um, because of her sense of shame and whether you felt that the sense of shame that she felt um, could possibly be intergenerational as well. Um, you know, African-Americans come from a place of, you know, being undereducated, historically um, underserved many times, um, and just feeling in general like they don't really belong to the mainstream. Does that enter into into Saskia's psyche, do you think? Um, I think yes. Yes, it does. Um well, in my, I've just, I made a conscious decision in writing young adult novels that I wanted um, at least one primary character, if not the most primary character, the protagonist, to always be multiracial because, um, honestly, there's such a dearth of them. Um, they're so underrepresented in, in teen and children's literature that I, I wanted to, you know, help be a part of that positive change. So um, in my previous book, Damselfly, the protagonist is more like me, the author, um, in that she's um, half Asian and half white. In Mercury Boys, um, Saskia is something that I personally am not, and she's half African American and she's half white. So um, I can't really, you know, I'm not being black, not being African American. I can't speak to that experience, but I can speak to the multiracial experience, and I think that is shared uh, across racial categories, you know, if you are multiracial, there are certain things that you feel regardless of what the components of your multiracial identity are. And some of those components are um, not being easily categorizable, um, not necessarily fitting in to one group of people or another, um, needing this ability to be slippery, needing this ability to kind of adapt depending on what group of people you're with and which identity or persona you want to um, show. Um, multiracial people tend to have higher levels of uh, bullying. They tend to have um, higher levels of um, uh, unfortunately, uh, poverty and food insecurity and um, emotional trauma. And um, this is especially important to know, I think, as we look at the numbers of multiracial people, because from the 2010 census to our most recent census uh, last year, the multiracial population exploded. It, it increased 276%, which is just astronomical. Um, and it was the single fastest growing population across all racial categories. So we have, you know, a huge surge of multiracial people, especially multiracial youth. And they really have some unique situations and circumstances that they're growing up in. Um, but I think society, culture, and certainly publishing um, is a little behind kind of identifying them as a unique group. Um, so like you said with Saskia, yeah, she definitely has, um, she is in a very vulnerable position. And I think her, you know, her racial identity is a big part of that. And, you know, the, the trauma she's experienced with her family is a big part of that. And when she makes this move to Connecticut and she falls in with this group of girls, some of whom have her best interests at heart and some of whom definitely do not, um, she is in a much more vulnerable state than she would have been previously when she had a more secure sense of self. Absolutely. And mean teenage girls, I mean, they can be so mean and really, you know, does that kind of romp and stomp actually end in teen years? You know, some people just need to have be dominant in ways that are entirely uncomfortable well into adulthood um, for different reasons, mostly their own in insecurities. But how easy is it to read that sometimes? It's not. Um, you know, I think that, you know, there's these power differentials can make us feel vulnerable, whatever that is, being multiracial and therefore not categorizable. Um, your term, I think, is excellent because, you know, here, you know, we're talking about a lot of non-binary um, paradigm shifts, right? You know, we're breaking down the categories that we had before, but that doesn't mean that acceptance 
is on the heels of those breaking down, like, you know, the questioning, including in, in terms of gender um, identification. So there are, you know, nebulous areas and, you know, maybe that's um, creating a sense that role models like Saskia, um, protagonists like Saskia who can't be easily categorized become kind of heroes to us um, just by virtue of her challenges um, and, you know, these mean girls. I mean, they become really mean. And it's worth mentioning that the two meanest girls, um, Paige and her sister, Sarah Beth, are privileged, rich. They come from a rich family and they are white, not entirely unimaginable in suburban Connecticut. Um I wondered, you know, there were a lot of then um, rights of initiation to this club. Um, as you say, it was slippery, slippery from the get-go because they um, basically smuggled these daguerreotypes out of the library. Um, and so ethically questionable territory that they're on. Um, do you think that, um, you know, taking advantage then of the club members, their need to belong and Saskia's intense need to belong at this time in her life um, and who, what teenage girl doesn't want to belong or even teenage boy. Um, you've got these punishments doled out for breaking the rules of the club and some of them are, are physically dangerous. Um, there, there's a lot of, you know, harrowing episodes that I happen to think are not far from real life types of situations that happen. Um it takes a real kind of narcissist, right, to become a leader of such a pack and expect these kinds of um, punishments and loyalties and oath impossible expectations of others. This narcissistic personality, does does anybody sort of know that Paige and her sister are not only sadomasochistic? I mean, how do these... How do these masked identities as leaders, as your best friend, as somebody who has your interests in heart, how do these camouflages take place? How, how do they last so long? Because I feel like those kinds of duplicitousness have, have lasted, they've endured on the world stage as well. How come it takes so long for people to, to uncover this? Yeah, I mean, it, it really, I see it, I see it even now, honestly. I don't, I think, you know, like you said, uh, Paige and Sarah Beth, um, they have a lot of privilege going for them. They're both, um, you know, conventionally very attractive. Um, they're, they're white. They have, very importantly, they have money. They have, have a lot of money, and they've always had kind of a, a high status, um, within the school. Um, Paige is, you know, very popular, and I think, you know, complicating matters is that she's, she's actually very smart, too. I mean, her IQ is very, very high, and she does very well in school, and she has leadership positions. Um, so for someone that is feeling insecure, that would be exactly the type of person, you know, you might be happy to, to be befriended by, you know, to be thrilled to be befriended by, because, um, you know, if, if someone like Paige... Um, thinks that you're important enough, you know, to be recognized, then that would mean that you matter, right? And that's, the, that's kind of what you were just getting at before. So even though this is a, a work of fiction and Paige is not real and Saskia is not real, I think definitely that there are, you know, Saskia's and Paige's all in every town all over the country, right? Um, you know, these, these things endure and um, a lot of the structures of, wealth and privilege, these endure too. So it, it is hard to disassemble these structures and to kind of figure out for teens to figure out, um, you know, just because a person has, have, has all of these things that doesn't necessarily make them a good person or a worthwhile person. And as we all know, um, you know, teens are figuring things out as they go. So of course they're going to not recognize people for, who they really are at times. We've, we've, we've all been guilty of this. And, and like you said, even adults are guilty of this sometimes, you know, maybe we've gotten older and wiser, but there are always people that are going to have, um, things that we, you know, that we want or that we want to attain and we're going to be attracted to these people. And 
hopefully, you know, as we gain more life experience, we'll be better able, able to differentiate who is in fact worthwhile and, and truly care, cares about us and who, you know, are people we'd better stay away from. We, we have a need for approval and, you know, um, the better handle we get on that and giving ourselves the validation that we are seeking, um, the more agency we have. Um, you know, Saskia is, is she, she feels also rejected and cast away from her mother who left the family. Um, this is not an unheard of uh, circumstance either. And this fear of rejection and feelings of unworthiness. I mean, how is that preyed upon in, in teenage life? It's, it's a huge theme, right? And it's one, it's one that we carry going forward. Um, do you, I mean, how do these, is part of storytelling the way to actually kind of heal or resolve some of these issues? Oh, definitely, because I think a lot of us read not just to escape, um, but also to see ourselves in the stories. You know, I any very good book I've ever read, I've come away from um, probably learning something not just about the story, but also about myself, right? So I think that, yeah, we, that I'm, I'm hoping at least that as people read the book, they identify with some of the cir- circumstances um, Saskia um, is going through and maybe you know, self-reflect and think, you know, how would I have dealt with that situation or have I already dealt with that situation and how did I come away from it? Um, one thing that surprised me when I wrote Mercury Boys is that I didn't realize how much I would like Saskia's best friend in the story, Lila. Um, oh, yeah. Lila, at the end of the day, is, is I think the most sympathetic, reliable, likable character in the book, honestly, because she's the only one that consistently seems to have a good head on her shoulders. And mm-hmm. um, she has a lot of self-confidence. Um, she knows who she is. She has a good sense of self. And thankfully um, that hasn't been shaken yet by life and circumstances and surroundings. So um, she is kind of the rock that not only Saskia relies on, but I think we as, as readers rely on too, you know, um, and I didn't set out trying to make Lila like that, but I'm very glad that she was. Me too, because Lila is the most reasonable. She stands her ground. She's not taken in with being impressioned, um, you know, by these the, the, the so-called grandeur of these girls, even though they have long tan legs and are totally popular with the boys and, you know, brilliant and all this other stuff. Well, forget it. Lila's not impressed. She's got her car and it's got dings in it and she's relatable and we love Lila. Um, We've got to take a commercial break right now, uh, but we're going to come back with Chandra Prasad, who's created these lovable characters and some despicable characters. When we come back on Dropping In, don't go away. We'll be right back. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're sitting with Chandra Prasad, author of Mercury Boys, 
And in this book, um, there are a number of characters who speak to us and speak wisdom to us. Cornelius is one of them. He says, be kind to others, be kind to yourself, and never allow others to deter you from your chosen path. I thought it was really um, beautiful that we had these different voices and some object lessons from these um, figurative people, these kind of mythological people. We were just talking about Lila and how really grounding she was in that she is the person who isn't taken in by the, by the cute popular girls who then abuse their power. Um, and, and Lila also, but she's also human enough to be part of this group, right? She is the one who helps to smuggle these daguerreotypes out of the library. And I wondered about the whole instance, the whole phenomenon of stealing, that stealing is somehow like compensating for something that you think you don't have. I mean, Lila is flawed in that certain sense, isn't she, Chandra? She she is, yeah. I mean, she is in this um, position in the library. She, she actually has a, a part-time job at this nearby college library that has this archive of daguerreotypes. Um, and there's um, a person who works there, actually, his name is Rich, who is another one of the few people in Mercury Boys that I think has every, has her best interest in heart, at heart, um, who is a very trustworthy character through and through. Um, so she's not only, you know, breaking the trust of the college when she takes these daguerreotypes off premises, but she's also breaking his trust too. Um, but I think for Lila... She really values Saskia. Um, we learn, I don't want to give too much away about in the book because it's kind of a important point, but um, Lila is gay and originally, you know, she kind of has a crush on Saskia, which, which really turns more into a friendship. But mm-hmm. she, you know, she wants to please Saskia. She wants to do right by Saskia. So when Saskia's asking for these daguerreotypes, she does make this concession and take them out. Um, and, it's wrong, but I think in Lila's mind, the end justifies the means. You know, she thinks, well, I'm doing, I'm doing this small transgression, but um, if it makes my friend happy and, you know, she, she obviously is in a, in a, she's in a bad place, right? She's having mm-hmm. a really hard time with a number of things. So if this gives her some happiness, I'm going to do it. Um, and I think that's why Lila, why Lila does it. I don't think she gets any thrill of, out of taking the, the things out, but um mm-hmm. Saskia, certainly by the end of the story, I think she sees what Lila, just how much Lila did for her. And she realizes that that's, you know, this is a true friend. This is a true friend that kind of looked out for me from the beginning. And um, she is able to compare her to some of the other girls in their group, the, you know, this Mercury Boys Club group, the secret society the girls established. And she's finally, by the end of the story, Saskia is able to parse through the different people and to see them for who they really are. And, you know, hopefully we all go on a life journey like that, right, at different points in our lives. And I think that's why, you know, friendships change and evolve over time, because we're able to see, um, you know, who is truly, you know, valuing us and who, you know, is with us just for a different kind of reason. Mm-hmm. We see through the veils, we, we pierce it. Um, Lila also, you know, she's on an authentic quest herself. It's not easy being a teenage girl and being gay. Um, and she, you know, she's she is true to herself. So I think, you know, yeah, she is the most compassionate of the figures. Um, I wondered about this idea of, um, you, you talk about it several times, chemicals and Okay, so Lila's, you know, she's at the she's at the library. The daguerreotype process she understands very well, and she actually um, they create their own daguerreotype, which is kind of fascinating. Um, the process of it, but chemicals. Okay, and you mentioned there are dangerous chemicals involved in daguerreotype making. There's also the pollution at the manufacturing facility in the town, wrong side of the tracks, but they do get there through, you know, some of their escapades, a Revo. Um, and, and you've got then the mercury itself, which you start to question, is that's what's making me have these fantasies? Am I, you know, under the, the illusion from the mercury? You know, how it's getting very slippery slope here, what's real and what's not. But one of the things that you do allude to 
is that there are potentially chemical causes of mental health issues, not to be a downer from the escapism of these of the girls and the Mercury Boys Club. But I mean, there is something to that, right? I mean, this concept that actually we could be dealing with pollution um, as a psychological factor. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no question. And I, I mean, anyone that's read any news um, knows that, um, you know, people have played a huge factor in um, the changes Earth is experiencing. And uh, as I've gotten old, older, it's never ceased to amaze me how we can willingly, you know, harm ourselves without realizing it. Um, I live in a town right now uh, that has a very high percentage of physicians, um, and that's because we're near a university um, and a hospital. That And so that's just, I'm saying this because um, every time I walk around our town, which is reliant on well water, I notice pesticide signs up everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people have sprayed their lawns, people have sprayed their trees, what, whatever, and um, you know, we have, you know, doctors not realizing that the chemicals they're spraying, which are um, in some, it, it, factually, they're neurotoxicants, um, they can cause all kinds of, you know, very severe, some, in some cases, they're carcinogens. Um, these chemicals are just washing off the lawn, you know, and they're going into um, the ground, and they're going into the common aquifer that we all share, and then we're, we're drinking this water. And my town is not an uncommon town. This happens all the time. You know, chemicals are everywhere and they're part of daily life. And I think we don't necessarily connect that, the, the, you know, the ingestion of all the chemicals in the air and in our water and in our food with um, the possibility that these could be affecting us, you know, mentally and physically. And it's not until we make a, a solid connection between, uh, for example, firefighting film has been in the news lately um, as being, you know, directly correlated to um, certain kinds of cancer. So firefighters have it, mm-hmm. have certain kinds of cancers. Um, it's not until that direct correlation is made that we're like, oh, aha, you know, this is dangerous. But the fact is that we are all, you know, exposed to quite a few chemicals all the time. And um, it is important to explore, to explore that and to really think about that as one of the precipitating factors for, um, mental health for physical health and you know for kids this is this is this, there's no question for me that that's that's part part of it part of the problem absolutely and then we've got the um smoke from the wildfires that has drifted across the continent um and is thought right. to cause you know brain damage in a very literal sense so I was just very glad to see you put that in there as an issue, um, a world, a global issue. And there's also another issue that um, culturally I thought was important that you brought up, and that is immigration, bigotry, and otherism. You are, um, again, we're off on this whirlwind fantasy ride, which is entertaining, if not um, illuminating. But here's a quote from the book. It's not safe here. This is one of the, um, this is one of the Mercury Boys. He whispers, disease has swelled, smallpox, cholera, and tuberculosis. Um, my father says it's the Germans who are responsible for this. And this is, this is um, he won't let immigrants into our store, even though he is one. But I don't believe the Germans are to blame. I don't believe anyone is. I mean, the sense of otherness, right? And the sense of, um, you know, someone's got to be, someone's got to be blamed. There has to be someone that we have to scapegoat. Is this something, another theme that you, you deliberately touched on and, and it sort of affects Saskia in a way too, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a perfect example of, you know, something happening in the 1800s where, the more things change, the more they, they stay the same, right? So at this time in Philadelphia in the 1800s, uh, Cornelius's father is worried about um, Germans coming in. Well, you know, you could pick a different place in America in a, in a different decade, and you can worry about Italians or Jewish people or Muslims or um, African Americans or uh, Mexicans. It doesn't matter. Someone is always kind of the culprit. Someone is always supposedly uh, lessening your quality of life or whatever. Um, this is just something that our country ha- and, and really the world has continually struggled with. Um, 
And I think when you look at it in historical context, um, you see just how absurd that is. Um, but we have to realize that these, this feel, these, these prejudices, these, this bigotry, this otherness, as you say, it's been around forever. Um, and mm-hmm. unless we all kind of recognize it as being arbitrary, um, you know, we're never going to get past it, right? So um, it's, it's hard. I think, it, I think we really do need to see it in a historical context, understand just how flawed this idea is that, you know, some other racial group is, is somehow sabotaging life for everybody. This, this doesn't, this isn't real, you know, and um, we're able to see that in fiction. It's a little harder to see it in reality sometimes. Right. Well, incredibly, we, we just have a few minutes until we close. I'm so glad that you zeroed in on this issue of otherness and estrangement from others, both personally with Saskia and on a macro level, with these speakers from another time. I also wanted to, at a very personal level, just you know talk with you briefly about just the idea of loyalty and love. So unquestioning loyalty and love. These get confused very easily, especially if you have a demanding user mother, as Saskia does, especially if you have the popular girls who are mean and, you know, using you for your, their own ends. How do you differentiate loyalty and love? And is that part of the message of your book, Mercury Boys? Yeah, what a tough lesson that is, right? I mean, I don't know if any of us haven't ever had someone in our lives that, that it's been hard to differentiate between loyalty and, and love or someone that's been toxic that we've, uh, haven't been able to discern that about. Um, it takes time and it takes, uh, you know, thoughtful, thoughtful calibration of that relationship. Um, and it's something that Saskia is going through, but it's a really universal experience trying to, to sort out, you know, if I'm, if I'm with someone that has always said that they're my friend or always said that they love me and they're a close relative, but every time I'm with them, I don't feel good about myself or, uh, you know, they say something derogatory that brings me down, then, you know, it, we, we have to be able to, to, to separate ourselves from these people. You know, it's, it's something that we all have to do in order to attain some level of self-peace. Correct. You're absolutely right. And Chandra Prasad, you've given us a beautiful book about free choice, strength, calm, equanimity, and developing ourselves and our identity. You write that failure is merely a necessary catalyst, propelling us ever closer to success. Thank you so much for being with us, Chandra Prasad. Oh, Diane, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. I love your show, and I I really appreciated being on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for us as well. You can find Chandra on her website, chandraprasad.com, mercuryboys.com, Twitter, Chandra Books, Instagram, Chandra Prasad Books, and TikTok, Chandra Prasad. It sounds like we're going to be able to hear more from you in future YA fiction, and I'm very glad of that. Thanks also to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Giolino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and don't let the turkeys get you down. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 